The Dumois family rented the cottage on Anna Maria Island from the parents of an office employee for two weeks, starting July 21, 1980. The doctor invited his sister, her husband, and their daughter to join them, although they would not arrive until the second week, July 28. So the Dumois family spent the first week by themselves. Both couples had older sons, named after their fathers, who stayed home that year and didn't accompany the families on vacation. It was young Eric's birthday, the day after Barrows and his family arrived, so they all celebrated him turning 13 years old. The next day was the first fishing trip that the boys would take, and they put in at the Kingfish boat ramp on that occasion as well. The boys had a successful day out on the water and caught plenty of fish. It rained the next day, so they spent most of that inside. And then on Friday, August 1st, 1980, the boys packed up and headed out for another day of fishing. They were on the water most of the day. After they managed to pull the boat out of the water, while they were strapping everything down and preparing to head out, they saw Maria Dumois with her daughter and niece drive by the boat ramp after stopping at Famous Recipe Chicken to purchase dinner. The ladies honked and the men waved before piling back into the station wagon. You know what happened next. So there's been a great deal of criticism over the years about how law enforcement handled those unfolding first minutes and first hours of the investigation. And if anyone has listened to this podcast since the beginning, you'll know that's not anything new. But I wanted to give some context from the police log. At 4.58, the first call to come into dispatch was from Mrs. Matsky, after which her husband hopped into his Fiat sports car and followed the suspect to the nearby Foodway parking lot. Four minutes later at 5.02, dispatch gets a report of an incident at the Foodway from a female inside the store. And at the same time, the first officer arrives at the vehicle and boat accident scene down the street. He calls for backup and an ambulance, advising that they had four people injured. One minute later at 5.03, the call comes in from bathing suit lady's husband outside at the payphone, outside the foodway, and he reports both accidents, the car and boat accident that they had driven by on Manatee Avenue and the Fiat crashing in the foodway that had just happened right behind him. One minute later at 5.04, the first responder to the foodway arrives, and at 5.06, two minutes after that, radios to advise that he had a victim shot in the back of the head. Ambulances were immediately dispatched to both scenes. At 5.08, just 10 minutes after the car jackknifed off the road, there was communication from one scene to the next, asking, quote, if they have a brown LTD over there. Witnesses at the foodway scene were already giving descriptions of the perpetrator's car, and by 5.16, there was a call with a witness description of the perpetrator from the foodway incident. White male, tall, dark curly hair, wearing red trunks, has a Florida tag, a brown Cordoba, no tag number, headed east on Manatee Avenue. All of this information was quickly being gleaned by officers at the scenes, as other officers and medical personnel were tending to the injured. That bolo was sent to Manatee County Sheriff's Office, Bradenton, and Florida Highway Patrol, as well as the Palmetto Police Department, which is north of Bradenton. 
I don't see anything here that indicates a lag in response time. In fact, the opposite. All hands appeared to be on deck, and the information that they had about the perpetrator and vehicle, whether it was a brown Cordoba or a Ford LTD with Florida tags, had been sent to the outlying areas. In the ensuing days, the vehicles were processed, and the leads were followed up on as they came in. A day after the incident, police received a report of an abandoned bicycle on the University of South Florida campus, and they impounded it. A couple days later, a vehicle matching the suspect vehicle was reported at the Bally High Apartments on Anna Maria Island. A few weeks after the homicide, a hand-drawn map was found by University of Florida police on the wall of a phone booth in the university center. The map depicted certain streets in Holmes Beach near the murder crime scene. But nothing appears to have come from any of those possible leads. Two days after the shootings, Raymond Barrows was shown images of their first suspect. He was a fugitive being tracked by the FBI for the murder of a 63-year-old woman in Falls Church, Virginia. No positive ID was made, although Barrows did indicate that he looked somewhat like the perpetrator in certain features, although his hair and sideburns were too long. Richard Lee Whitley had slit the throat of a woman and then fled with her credit cards and vehicle, abandoning it in front of the Okeechobee Courthouse on the same day as the murders in Holmes Beach. His photo was shown to multiple witnesses, none of which ID'd him, although some said that he resembled the perpetrator. Whitley is white, 6'2", 165, slender, blue eyes, brown hair, although it was reported that he was missing his lower two front teeth something that one would imagine Raymond Barrows would have noticed when speaking to the man before the incident occurred. In a statement summary from his interview with Sergeants Jerry Feltman and Sergeant Mark Flint, we get a glimpse of some of the back and forth. Quote, Sergeant Feltman told Whitley to knock off the con job and lay some truth on us. We knew he was not being truthful about his trip down here and the Holmes Beach murders. Whitley admitted killing the woman in Virginia but throughout the interview denied the Holmes Beach murders. I asked Whitley, you admit to killing the woman in Virginia, don't you? He said, yeah. Then why don't you admit to the Holmes Beach murders? You can only burn once. His answer, because I did not kill them. I haven't used a gun in a long time. But you did kill the woman in Virginia. He said, yeah. Well, how'd you do that? Whitley said, with a knife. Where'd you cut her stabber? I cut her jugular vein. They die quicker when you cut them there. So yeah, Whitley sounds like a real peach, but the officers sound like they really wanted him to be their guy, and he wasn't. Florida Department of Law Enforcement, or FDLE, was assisting with fingerprint analysis, and their crime scene analysis unit processed the Dumois and Matsky vehicles in Tallahassee, Florida. Using what they described as laser technology, it was reported that they were able to locate a shoe print on the back seat of the station wagon. They also vacuumed the vehicle for fiber and hair samples that were sent to a lab in Sanford, Florida for analysis. Once Raymond Barrows was well enough to be moved, he was reportedly transported to a hospital in Hillsborough County and assigned a deputy to guard his room. They were unable to remove the bullet So Mr. Barrows was left with a permanent and painful reminder of the events of August 1st, 1980. He was interviewed by a reporter while in the hospital, 
much to the chagrin of his wife, Dora. Throughout the interview, she asked him to stop talking. She begged him. She said she was afraid of what would happen and if the killer would come after them. But Barrows continued to talk after reassuring her. She sat cutting his hospital food and feeding him throughout the interview, intermittently chiding him for speaking too much. Please, she said, that's enough. On August 9th, eight days after the murders of his family, Tampa Bay Times' Richard Bachman interviewed Juan Dumois' oldest son, his namesake. This was an interview brimming with memories of his little brothers, how Eric had just turned 13, how he played in Little League and soccer and attended Christ the King parochial school, how little Mark, six-year-old Mark, was wicked smart with an impish grin and he was super curious. A little show-off, his brother said, who had earned lots of trophies for athletic and academic achievements. There was a memory in the Bachman interview about Dr. Dumois, too, that illustrated his playful side, about how, after his son Juan and his girlfriend had watched the movie The Shining, that the doctor had grabbed a knife and mugged for the camera as Jack Nicholson. They said he was the dad who would answer the door on Halloween in costume. He was the doctor who made sure to have the nurses give the shots, so that his tiny patients wouldn't be afraid of him. Family described him as having a particular fondness for what they called dime stores, like Kmart. He'd go in for one little thing and he'd come out with a pirate's booty of other stuff. Juan Jr.'s girlfriend talked about how the doctor and his wife interacted, how clear it was to her that they loved each other by their little kindnesses and the gestures between the two. One thing of note that the doctor's oldest son said was that the killer approaching with an injury and a bike might have been the reason his father allowed the stranger in their car, something that he said he would not normally do. But Juan Jr. was an avid cyclist, and he wondered if that was why his father gave the man a ride. It was around this time, just over a week after the murders, that law enforcement announced that they were unable to connect Virginia fugitive Richard Lee Whitley to the Holmes Beach murders. He and his companion had been questioned for five hours and they found no link to him or the crime. In an August 10th Tampa Tribune article by Rick Barry and Carol Jenkins, a new and interesting detail emerges about that fateful car ride. Raymond Barrows told the reporter that after the man got into the back seat of the vehicle with the boys and the doctor pulled the station wagon out on Manatee Avenue, it dawned on the doctor that his passenger hadn't been limping despite his claim of an injured ankle. The doctor had, after all, helped him lift that bike into the boat, so he would have been in a position to notice if he was favoring the ankle then, as well as when he walked back around to get in the back seat on the passenger side. In that moment, just before the shots rang out, according to this article citing information from Raymond Barrows, Dr. Dumois said something to Barrows in Spanish about there being no noticeable limp. And in the interview that I played for you, the recreation of Raymond Barrows, it seems as though the police might have been told this story because when asking Raymond Barrows if there had been any conversation between he and the doctor or anyone else in that vehicle, Mr. Barrows said no, but they asked him over and over again, are you sure there was no conversation between you and the doctor or anyone else in that vehicle? Kurt Siver asked him repeatedly as if he had heard that point 
but Mr. Barrows was forgetting. But if it did happen, that exchange, you can close your eyes and imagine it, can't you? It's not hard to picture. That quiet back and forth in Spanish, perhaps the doctor's eyes darting from Barrows into the rearview mirror to look momentarily at the stranger in the back seat with his children, maybe even a look of concern passing across his face. This appears to be the moment that the perpetrator struck. Does the exchange suggest that the perpetrator knew Spanish? Maybe. But if this is accurate, the doctor suddenly speaking in his native tongue, clearly assuming the stranger wouldn't understand, is one of those exchanges that someone could probably figure out just from body language. Barrow said this was a white male with a New England accent. He did not mention a Spanish accent, and being a native speaker himself, I feel certain that he would have recognized that. Maybe it was something in the tone of the two men speaking, or the fact that they were not conversing in English, that triggered the killer. On its face, killing someone in that vehicle, one or all of them, seems to have been the plan that day. The killer was carrying a gun, and he had two getaway vehicles. But while it wasn't random, it doesn't seem to have been in a sense that it impulsively occurred without thought, this group of people that was chosen as the victims could have been random. A random choice made by the perpetrator on that day. Because the police were never able to identify any links or issues in the lives of the victims that would have provided motive for the attack. On Tuesday, August 12th, there was a meeting held in the state attorney's office, which included Holmes Beach Police Chief Tom Shanafelt and Detective Sergeant Mark Flint from the Manatee County Sheriff's Department. After that meeting, they publicly announced that Richard Lee Whitley was no longer a suspect. He had an airtight alibi. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement, who had examined the evidence, were in agreement. Whitley's prints did not match those lifted from the Dumois station wagon and boat. Whitley and another man had checked into the Lighthouse Gospel Mission in Tampa around 6 p.m. on the day of the killings, which occurred right at 5 p.m. Police say that while they didn't have an exact time, the mission checks in between 5.30 and 7, and witnesses at the mission remembered Whitley waiting in line for dinner as early as 5.15 p.m., which would make it impossible to have been in Holmes Beach at 5 p.m. Whitley's signature was also matched with the registration book. With their only suspect alibied out, the air seemed to seep from the investigation. They were following every lead they got, but they weren't gaining any ground, and they'd been working ungodly hours. Holmes Beach Detective Sergeant Mike Grace kept two blurry photos hanging on his office door that were snapped by a passerby that day who thought they were taking a picture of the car accident. One picture included the killer as he ran around the car to retrieve his bike. I've seen it, and the image is so blurry it was no help to police. But as the only shot of the perpetrator, I can just imagine that detective staring at it often willing a face to emerge from the haze. Next door, Police Chief Tom Shanafelt's desk was peppered with pink message slips and crumpled ones in the nearby trash can. It was clear to the journalists covering the case that it was beginning to wear on the lawmen around the two-week mark. By this time, detectives from four different agencies were working on the case, with dozens more agencies helping in some capacity. 12 to 15 hour workdays, often longer, with nothing to show for it except the images of those dying boys. 
not a single concrete lead. All they could do was follow up on every tip that came in, but nothing panned out. And they all kept coming back to those kids. Who would kill two innocent little boys? They found nothing to help in the backgrounds of the victims, either of them. No motive emerged. The nature of the crime looked on its face like something akin to a contract killing. Premeditated, well-planned, two getaway vehicles, a ready story to gain entrance to the vehicle. 22 caliber pistol shots at close range. But what kind of contract killer chooses a moving vehicle as an environment that is apt to end in a clean getaway? Never mind one that wouldn't risk injury to the killer himself. That intersection there on Manatee Avenue is busy. There are a lot of witnesses. Yet, he pulled it off. Was it luck? Or was it something more? That's been the biggest puzzle of this story, because we are no closer to an answer today than we were 41 years ago. The killer of two men and two young boys, he got away with it. The family hired a private investigator in November of 1980, three months after the murder. Raymond Barrows underwent hypnosis around this time, and a new composite sketch was created, one that Barrows felt was much better than the earlier sketches. To be fair, he was only one witness, but he was the only surviving witness who had been in that vehicle with the killer, and he had spoken to him, up close. The man in the sketch had a cleft chin, piercing blue eyes, and a deep, furrowed brow. His eyebrows were bushy, and they turned up, they curled up at the ends. Barrows had focused on those eyes in his first interview, those distinctive eyebrows and eyes that had done something strange. Sounded like they had a nervous tick or a blink. Chief Shanafelt, for his part, had concerns about the new composite drawing. He said, We've got the star witness giving us two completely different pictures of the killer. It would be a strong point for the defense. We all agreed to leave that man alone after the initial interviews so as not to taint him as a state witness. The chief was concerned about a trial at that point, but looking back decades later, a trial was something they never even got close to. Still, his point was well taken. The more you futz around with the memories of witnesses, the muddier the waters can get. But to be fair, police also had a couple witnesses hypnotized in an effort to get more information out of them. So I think it's possible he was just frustrated that the new composite shoved more questions into the mix. And more questions is not what they were hoping for. Questions were something they already had a huge pile of. They certainly didn't need any more. The chief took a jab at the private detective, mentioning that he had walked into his office with a television crew behind him. We have nothing to substantiate who he was or where the drawing came from. He said they would not be distributing this new drawing, clarifying that a second drawing, released by police that same month, was made with the help of multiple hypnotized witnesses other than Barrows. The private investigator countered, saying the resemblance of the new composite was so close, Raymond Barrows had an emotional reaction. They hoped that the new color drawing would be more helpful than the black and white composites, which admittedly did make the perpetrator look Hispanic, which was clearly not the case. When I first saw the black and white composites, I immediately thought the man looked Hispanic, and that certainly would not be helpful in bringing in accurate leads. In color, the private investigator said, 
It shows he's actually light-skinned and he looks German or Scandinavian, with blue eyes and brown hair. Notably, the P.I. theorized that the killer was a local that lived in the Holmes Beach area. He's light-complexioned but heavily tanned. To me, that means he has been on the beaches for a long time. He probably drove to that parking lot every day, took out his bike, and rode up and down the causeway for exercise or something. He's in the right age group for Vietnam, and the proficiency with which he did those shootings shows some training. Maybe he did hurt his ankle and everything he said was true, but in the confinement of the car, he went berserk. Now, I can get on board with some of that, but the guy had a gun with him when he got into the car, so I don't think he just suddenly went berserk. I have, though, been trying to think about this case differently. Maybe we're reading this whole thing wrong. We don't know when that car was put in that lot. It could have been parked there for days, for all we know. And the killer spent those days traveling the island on his bike, just like the private investigator said. Nobody got a good look at his vehicle to see what was inside. This could have even been a person who lived out of his car, and he had been on the island for a bit. Or it could have been strategically planned, planting the car, using the bike, and picking up the victims. We just don't know. Raymond Barrow said that the first composite sketch was a good sketch, but, quote, far from what I related to the police artist. The first sketch was made the day after the homicides by a Manatee County Sheriff's Department officer at Barrow's hospital bedside. Law enforcement was saying the sketches were not that different as a reason to not release the third sketch. But if you go back and look at them, that seems strange because they do all look different to me. Every one of them. Most of them look older than someone in his 20s to 30s, and I tend to agree with the PI on one thing. The black and white composites did nobody any favors because they do tend to make you think the perpetrator could be Hispanic, especially knowing that the victims were of Cuban descent. That could be misleading, and it could keep accurate leads from coming in. In the end, composites can be a great tool, but they can also be problematic, particularly if they're based on witness accounts that are conflicting. Like any other law enforcement tool, composites are only as good as the information used to create them and the people involved on both ends, witness and creator. Composite sketches rely on the memories of humans. If witness accounts are a factor in wrongful convictions, composites created by witnesses would have the same problems baked in. They can help rule people out, but they certainly shouldn't be used as the sole basis to rule someone out in the same way that no responsible law enforcement agent would rule someone out strictly due to a polygraph test. Sketches can be most helpful when the subject has a feature or features that stand out. But having an iffy composite drawing plastered all over town could be less productive to an investigation. And that's why it's up to the judgment of law enforcement as to whether a composite is a useful tool in any particular investigation. Sometimes they're not. In the end, it all comes back to the reliability of eyewitnesses in crimes. People who have been in a stressful situation might even be afraid of taking part in that process. And add those stressors to things like distance, lighting, length of time they saw the perpetrator. I know I would be a horrible witness to a crime. I tend to take in the bigger picture, and I lose the small details, and forget about vehicles. I could probably give you the color of a car with some degree of accuracy, but there's no way I could pick out a make or a model unless it was something very specific like the car from the Dukes of Hazard or the time-traveling DeLorean in Back to the Future. Let's face it, when witness accounts are basically all you have, 
you don't have much. In the next episode, we'll explore the unlikely drug hit theory. Stay tuned.